top international author Diana Jeffries is back with a stunning World War II epic, the first book in a new series that went straight to the top of the Sunday Times bestseller list. Daughters of War is a tale of three sisters, secrets and bravery in the darkness of war-torn France. Welcome to the joys of binge reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and in Binge Reading today, Dinah talks about Growing Up in Malaysia, the book that helped her break through as an international author, and why she enjoys books that are rooted in community stories. We've got three ebook copies of Daughters of War to give away to three lucky readers. You can enter the draw on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com, or on our Binge Reading Facebook page. Interested in seeing exclusive bonus content like Dinah's answers to the Getting to Know You five quickfire questions, then consider supporting the podcast on Patreon. For as little as a cup of coffee a month, you'd be helping fund the show and you'd also share in some entertaining behind-the-scenes news. But now, here's Dinah. Hello there, Dinah, and welcome to the show. It's good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Look, you're an international best-selling author of historical fiction, but normally you've tackled Asian settings. But the last two books, Daughters of War, which is the one we're talking about today, and the one before that, The Tuscan Contessa, are both set in Europe in Second World War time. Why did you make that change? I think I had done six books set in the East. I was born in Malaysia and lived there as a child. So it was familiar to me, although they were all different countries, you know, Burma or Myanmar, rather, Vietnam, Malaysia, India. That's you know, those kind of countries. But there came a point when I just needed something new. I needed a new challenge. I didn't know what that new challenge was. But the most obvious thing to begin with was a change of location. And and that's really all it was. And Tuscany was the first choice because I was staying there on a family holiday and I hadn't thought of it as a World War II book or even a book set in Tuscany. But I headfirst fell down some steps, twisted my foot and had to spend most of the holiday with my foot up covered in ice. And I read a lot of books about what had happened in northern Tuscany in the mountains during the Second World War. And it just was so intriguing. And I just thought, no, that's what I'm going to do. And then it's gone from there. So I thought, well, after Tuscany, if I do another World War II book, where would I like to set that? And 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 that's when I hit on the idea of a rural village in the Dordogne. Um, and that's really all the change was about. And I think as well as wanting to do a different kind of book or a, set, a book set in a different kind of location, I'd really had enough of all the long haul flights because I always go, you know, to the places I set my books and Europe's a lot easier from here. Yes, that's right. And just to digress for a moment, I did notice in your website 
biog that you spent some time in Tuscany as an au pair working for a Tuscan countess, didn't you, at one stage? I did, did, yeah. That was a long time ago. I was 19 and it was San Gimignano, which is very well known as the town with all the towers. But when I was there, there were virtually no tourists at all. I was, well, I was the only foreigner in the village for several months. Yeah, it was an interesting time. So, of course, I did go back there on one of my trips to Tuscany before the pandemic, luckily, and went to see it. And it's just changed so much as places do. Yes. But was there anything of that experience that you could use in the book? I suppose the feel of the location, you know, the tower was perhaps one of the things that sparked the idea of the tower in the Tuscan Contessa. So, yeah, that. Probably the fragrance. I always think fragrance, how the air smells, that kind of thing is often nice to put in, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, the feel, the sensations of it, the the scents, the the colours, the light, you know, all that. But then I did go to Tuscany four times while I was, during, before and after a little bit, I wrote the book. So I, I refreshed a lot of my memories. Yes, yes. Well, Daughters of War, the most recent one, deals with three sisters who are left in France in a family home when their mother returns to England. And they're in Vichy, France, so they're supposedly, supposedly, I guess, neutral citizens, but they find themselves drawn more and more into conflict situations. It's late in the war, it's 1944, Tell us, apart from just wanting to set a book in France, what sparked that idea of the three sisters and then the whole setup? Well, I think World War II uh, offers kind of ready-made epic escapist fiction, delivering antagonists, enemies, heroes. But you have to capture, you know, specific scenarios and specific characters that, that connect with a reader's own experience of life. And so the inspiration really for the book was the sister relationship itself, you know, mm. the deep bonds between sisters, the the arguments, the jealousies, and the secrets. They're all very different kinds of women, and and they all have to learn to be brave in different ways. And it reminded me of tales my mother used to tell, because she's gone now, but she, during World War II, at just 14, was a fire watcher during the Second World War on the roof of Boots the Chemist, that's what it used to be called, in Sheffield. And when I was younger, I didn't think much about it, really. But when I was writing this book, I I couldn't ask her anymore. But I did wonder how it must have felt. I think probably quite, it might have been scary, but I think it was quite exciting. So this book, I wouldn't say it's exciting. (laughs) I think it's very much about how these sisters cope with each other and the war. The book isn't about horrors, it's about people. And so that's what I did. And and the sister relationship was where it all started. It might not be exactly exciting, but there's a tremendous amount of tension that builds up, both externally because of things that are happening in the village, but also between the three of them as they try and negotiate the way they're going to conduct themselves to avoid getting into trouble with the German occupation. So it's there's plenty of conflict there, as you say. Oh, yes. You've got it planned as a trilogy, don't you? I do. I do, yes. In fact, I'm publicising Daughters of War, which is the first one. I'm copy editing The Hidden Palace, 
which is the second one. And I've got 40,000 words of the third one. So <laughs> I'm juggling. That's amazing. And so when you started out, how much did you know was how much outlining did you do for the three books right at the outset? I didn't actually. I knew it was going to be about three sisters and that the story was going to continue. But what happened was I had an original idea which actually got ditched fairly fairly early on in writing the first one because I realized that the final book really had to be the first book because it was the most immediately powerful and the following two books had to, had to basically go somewhere else. So I wrote what, what sounds complicated. I wrote what was going to be my third book as my first book and still then had to work out what the second and third were going to be. And in fact, it was only when I got towards the end of Daughters of War that I suddenly had the idea about a character who could be central to the second book as well as one of the sisters. And I had to then thread in a little bit about that character into Daughters of War so that it would work and wouldn't just seem as if it had come out of the blue. And as far as the third book is concerned, I didn't know at all what was going to happen. I just knew where it was going to be set. And that's uh, Morocco. Fantastic. It's, I was thinking about this because actually I've written a historical mystery which started out with three brothers and I and I sort of devote, devoted the first three books to each one of those brothers but you haven't done that it's tempting to do that because it's neat and tidy way to do it but in this book all of the sisters at the end of book one their endings are quite open and there's lots of open storylines and un, uncompleted plot lines so that you really do want to read on to book two to see what happens to them things like the character Jack who is an, an English airman in the first book, there's a lot of unresolved issues around him. And then there's some boys in the village who I think were betrayed them, but you don't quite know that at the moment. And you, you don't quite know where that's going. And, you know, there's lots of interesting lines like that. And I guess that was something you really had to do to feed into the story lots of incomplete threads that you can carry through into the other two books. Yes. I mean, I, I knew I wanted all three sisters to get through the war and, you know, this family secret uh, and a terrible betrayal uh, unravels their close-knit lives. And as you've mentioned, Jack, yes, well, he does appear in the second book. He is one of the threads that you wonder about, I think. Basically, I wanted to write women my readers would really root for. Uh, I wanted their stories to touch our heart. You know, we want stories to touch our hearts. We want to care. We want to love the characters or hate them or to feel suspense, fear or joy along with them. And, I, and, and that's what I was aiming for in the first book. And then the second book takes some of that onwards without saying too much. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. The three of the three sisters, they've got each one's got a rather a different attitude towards risk taking. And with the eldest one, Helene, very much being the one who wants to try and keep her other two sisters safe and the other two sisters inclined to be quite a lot bigger risk takers. And I must admit, as I read it, I feared for Helene because I kept on thinking that she might be the one that something dreadful happened to. So it's good to, to 
for the people to hear that everybody survives at least book number one. Yes, it's interesting that you say that about Helen, because to be honest, that wasn't a tension that I particularly focused on and, and didn't really even realise was there. Um I mean, there are significant deaths in the book, and I felt that was enough. And because I really wanted the three sisters to continue uh, as three sisters throughout the three books, even though the balance of how much space they take up in the story differs a lot. I mean, this book, there are three they, they are three point of view characters. Helene, however, has the biggest chunk. In the next book, Florence has the biggest chunk. So um, I, I think that's really all I need to say about that. <laughs> yes, yes. And because it's right towards the late years of the war, it's 1944, and actually during book one, the arrival in, in Normandy happens. So you know that they're on the way to liberation. But I think those years all of us probably have that sense of, oh, we just really hope they're going to get through. They've got this far that you don't want them to get killed the day before peace is declared. I, I always think there's a terrible sort of sadness and irony about those poor folk who died within a few days of peace being declared. And that's very much hangs over the story as well, I think. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they're at the end of, the, of their tethers, really. They're desperate for liberation from the Nazi occupation and for normal life to return. And the people are hungry or hiding. There, there have been executions and disappearances. And the Nazis, too, are growing more and more desperate, knowing that it's looking more and more likely that they may not win the war. Everyone's had enough, but there are still obstacles to overcome and dangers to face, right up to the end. And of course, a big theme I feel of this book is how we overcome really difficult times, how we face those difficulties and challenges and, and still find the strength to go on, still maintain hope and bravery and love as well. So I think, yes, close to the end, is it's a bit like writing a book, isn't it? You, <laughs> you're almost at the end and you're desperate to get there, but there are still obstacles to overcome. There's also, I think, themes of family separation. Their mother, the figure of the mother is quite distant and you're not really quite sure how committed she is to her girls. And I noticed, I thought it was interesting that your first novel was called The Separation. And you've said that Emma, the main character in that book, is very close to you as a person. And I wondered if there was something about that theme of family separation that you found also intriguing, because you have returned to it several times, haven't you? Yes. I mean, I think it's pretty much a universal theme that people can very easily connect with. Most readers want to feel something, you know, when they read. And to write fiction that evokes emotion, you have to open yourself up in front of everyone. So I find the theme of separation is one that works for me. It's been a theme in my own life, my, my own son, fatal accident. So loss and separation is part of me. So it's it's not surprising that it comes out in my books. And also, when we moved to England and left Malaysia, I was just coming up to nine. And it had been my life, you know, living somewhere hot with palm trees and beaches. And nothing could have been more different than 19, the end, towards the end of the 1950s, 
Midlands in England in February. And so the sense of separation I felt from the land of my birth, which I saw as my land, even though I was British and it wasn't really my land at all, but I felt a huge sense of separation from that. So I think those two things have kind of threaded through my life and thread through my books, not necessarily consciously. And so the first book, The Separation, in a way was a kind of ode to the country I felt I had lost. Yes, yes. It was your second book, The Tea Planter's Wife, that made you an international bestseller, wasn't it? It was It was a Sunday Times bestseller. It made the Richard and Judy Book Club, which is famous in England. People in other countries may not quite appreciate how much prominence that would have given you. And it was a Kindle number one seller as well. What do you think it was it about that book that gave you the cut through? Well, do you know, I wish I knew. <laughs> I mean, I think luck always plays a part. The right book, the right time, in the right hands. And I think that's really what happened to some extent. Also, the theme of giving away a baby is something that really tugs at people's hearts. Yes, it was the first of two Rich and Judy book club picks, and it did go to number one in the Sunday Times bestsellers. And it stayed in the bestseller list for I think it was something like 16 weeks. So there was quite a bit of word of mouth as well. And the Richard of Richard Judy told me that they'd had more people come up in the street and and talk about that book than any others for quite some time. So there must have been something about it <laughs> that touched people's hearts, you know. Yeah. Um, it's so difficult to know. I think even publishers don't know which books are really going to make it and which books aren't. It's something of a lottery. Yeah. And I guess if you knew exactly what it was, you'd be able to re reproduce it every single time. Exactly. And th there's not many people who can do that. There are some, but there are not many. Yeah. Look, lush settings, have, as you've mentioned, are very much a feature of your books. Reviewers mention them. And I wonder how you've been affected by the travel restrictions that we're facing with the pandemic. Perhaps not quite so much in Europe because you're still traveling around a bit more there, but have you been affected? No, we haven't been traveling around in Europe at all. Oh, okay. No, no. no we haven't been able to for a short while last summer. And it's only really opened up recently. And some countries haven't wanted us. And I don't blame them because we've had such terrible figures, yeah. such terrible death count. Mm. But no, I couldn't go to Malta for the second book. And it's now written, as I said, I, I'm doing the copy edit. So I, I, I had a fantastic trip all booked for Malta in April this year couldn't go, wasn't allowed to go. The writing Daughters of War, I wasn't able to get to France by the time I might have got there last summer. Although, frankly, the pandemic was still pretty much going strong in France. I, I, I couldn't go. So 
the Daughters of War, I had to rely entirely on memory of going there about 50 years ago and also looking at a lot of YouTube and reading a lot of books and talking to people who knew the Dordogne. So it was a very different experience for me. And Malta, I've never been to. So again, it was reading, watching YouTube, look, trying to find films that were filmed there, reading novels that there, everything I could find to give myself a really good feel of what it was like. And now I'm <laughs> hopefully going to Morocco in Marrakesh and the Atlas Mountains in November this year. However, the uh, pandemic, the Delta variant has gone absolutely berserk there now. So uh, I don't know. It's really been hard, actually. I know it's been much harder for people who've been ill, so I shouldn't really complain at all. And luckily, I haven't been ill and none of my family have. And my heart really goes out to people who have. I've got a friend double vaccinated, no previous health issues, fighting for her life here in hospital now as we speak. So, no, it's not been good. The good part of the pandemic for me as a writer is that I've just been able to escape into my imaginary world and not worry too much. You know, when I couldn't see people I love, I, I'm here with my husband, so that's okay. My family live just down the road, so we'd have conversations with them standing in their house and me standing in the road. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I think for, for getting the books written, it's been brilliant. No other distractions, you know, but I am getting, you know, to the point now where I really want to get out and, and go to the places I'm writing about. Yes, it is a bit scary. Friends who have been vaccinated and still have got the variant, mostly not terribly seriously, but obviously in some cases still quite ill with it. Yes, I, I think it's very unlucky if you are affected that way because the majority, I know, aren't hospitalised, but she has been and is likely to be ill for a long time because it's damaged her lungs. So, you know, I, I don't know. It's a funny old thing, isn't it? Yeah, so even when you are double vaccinated, it's still there is still a risk factor in just sailing out into the world, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. Um, and and I'm waiting for news of really what everything is going to look like come November, how Morocco is, they've introduced a new countrywide curfew. So I don't know. I, every time I think it's going to be okay, it isn't. <laughs> and every year uh, I go with my family to a small Greek island called Paxos. And it's just the most beautiful, small, very green Greek island. And we couldn't go this year and we couldn't go last year. Mm -hmm. So we've put it forward to next year. So fingers crossed, we actually make it. Yes. Um, yeah. Look, turning away from talking about the books to your wider career, tell us a little bit about how you actually got started in fiction writing and what you had done before that that might have fed into your writing, the experiences that helped turn you into a writer? Well, I'd always written, but not fiction. I'd always had on and off anyway, a journal and I'd written, you know, short stories and but you know just now and again over a, a lifetime really and I'd done lots of different jobs before I started writing fiction I was painting landscape you know abstracts I suppose you could large abstracts and I'd had lots of different jobs as you as you know I'd been an au pair I'd sort of 
gone back to nature, living with a rock band at one point. Writing fiction started because we were living in France. No, we were living in Spain, in northern Andalusia, my husband and I. And the crash of 2008 happened and we lost quite a lot of money because of some thing that happened. Anyway, we needed to sell up and come back to England to start earning money again because my husband was sort of early retired and was just doing bits of consulting. Anyway. The crash affected us badly and we put the house on the market ready to sell it and come back to England and we couldn't sell it, not for a year and a half. And in that time, I started writing because I thought I would finally write the novel that I had at the back of my mind and thought that maybe one day I would write. But it focused my mind. I thought, okay, I need to not think about what's going to happen. I need to not think about losing the money. I need to not think about the fact that we can't sell our house. And I put all my attention on writing a book. And actually, it just came so easily. It didn't get published. It didn't get me an agent. It got an agent interested and she took The Separation, which was my next book. But it was like a learning curve, that first book. And at least I learned I could start at the beginning, get through it and finish it. Because when you start writing fiction, you haven't got a clue. Well, I certainly didn't, unless you've been on a course of some kind. You don't know if you're going to be able to finish it. You don't know if you can put it together. You you don't really know anything. I certainly didn't. And I certainly didn't even know that much when I finished it. But at least I knew I could do it, you know, actually physically produce something. And And it just sort of was like a duck to water, really. And has been ever since. That doesn't mean sometimes it's really difficult and and I'm not enjoying it at all, but you just work through those patches. So for me, I think the only regret I have uh, is not actually realising I could do this earlier on in my life. Yes, yes. But that's lovely. Look, this is the joys of binge reading. We're starting to come to the end of our time together. So turning to what you like to read, we like to make some recommendations for our listeners for their next great read. What is your taste in fiction and are you a binge reader as such? I'm more of a binge listener these days. I, I, I absolutely adore audiobooks if they've got the right narrator. And I would say my my favourite two authors are Jane Harper. I've listened to all four of her books and absolutely love them. And Tana French, who I think is equally brilliant. And they both share uh, writing strong books with depth that don't rely on gimmicks or psychopaths or whatever. They're very much rooted in communities and groups of what feel like real people. So I absolutely love those two authors and would recommend them to anyone. And as far as one particular recent book I've read, I don't know if it's published over there, but it's by Joanna Glenn, who wrote The Other Half of Augusta Hope, and it's called All My Mother's. And it was the most touching book I've read or rather listened to in a really, really long time. I would very much recommend that to anyone. It's just powerful about what it means to be a mother. And it's just the most enchanting story set in Cordoba in Spain. And now I'm reading something completely different, which is Malibu Rising, I can't remember the author's name, but Malibu Rising. So you can see uh, these are all very different kinds of books. And I like to read, I like to read 
lots of different kinds of books. And The Harpy by Megan Hunter, I thought that was particularly good. So really, there's a few. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think Malibu Rising is Taylor Reed or Taylor Someone Reed. Something like that. Yes, Taylor's definitely in it. Yes. Yeah. 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 I was quite, I haven't read it actually, but I was quite fascinated by the first one she did, which was supposedly based on um, Stevie Nicks and and the band, you know, that, that one sounded fascinating as well. Yeah, I I didn't read that one. So I, I came across this almost by accident. I love finding books by accident because that's how I find books that I wouldn't necessarily have looked for. Yeah. But Jane Harper. Jane Harper was a real find for me. And, and the first book, The Dry, is a film now, as you probably know. Mm, and we watched mm. we watched it the other night. Mm. I thought it was good, but I preferred the book. Yeah. Um, talking of audiobooks, I listened to Daughters of War and I thought your narrator and that was fantastic. Oh, I haven't heard it yet. Mm. I can't wait. I did choose her. So I'm glad to hear that you liked it. Circling round and looking back down the tunnel of time with your writing, is there anything you'd do differently if you were doing it all over again? With the writing, no, apart from starting writing earlier in my life. But we come to things as we come to them, don't we? Yeah. We bring ourselves and everything we've been and who we are and what we've been through to whatever we're doing. So in some ways, maybe it just was perfect the way it was. I've changed a bit of the way I write. I didn't plan at all to begin with. The first two books weren't planned. I knew what they were about. And then I went into planning quite strictly And now I've loosened up again because I find that if I try to stick to a plan, I I do have better ideas as I go along. The act of writing for me brings up things that I could never have just thought about while I was trying to work out a a plan. So it's not really that I would do anything differently. I I think it's more about how, how your professional work changes as you go along really yeah now we've talked about what you've got on for the next 12 months I think your time's pretty well full up with finishing this trilogy isn't it when do you hope to have that third book done I don't know I mean Daughters of War's out this September so The Hidden Palace will be out 20 September 22 and the Moroccan book will be September 23. So I think I've got lots of time. I'm ahead of myself. I am finding the Moroccan book trickier to write in some ways. So I'm going to take it a bit more slowly than I usually do. And I and I seem to be writing it in chunks. Normally, I just keep going till I've got the first draft done. But I stopped at about 20,000 words I sent it to my editor because I've changed publisher. I have an amazing new editor. And she actually wanted me to change quite a lot. And I thought that was really useful because it meant I didn't write the whole book and then have to change a whole book. And now I've written the next 20,000 and I'm currently going over that. It's almost like it's almost like it's going to fall into five acts, this yes, book. Yes, yeah. Oh. yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Now, I'm sure you like to hear from your readers. Where can they find you online? Okay, so the biggest thing about me is the spelling of my name. 
because <laughs> everybody gets it wrong. So Twitter is at Dinah Jeffries and it's D-I-N-A-H-J-E-F-F-E-R-I-E-S because Jeffries can be spelt three or four different ways. I've got that E-R in the middle, which often gets left out and that's Twitter. And then on Facebook, Dinah Jeffries hyphen author. We'll put all these links in the show notes for the episode as well. So they will be there if people oh. need to search them out. Oh, and a website. I forgot about that. www.dinahjeffries.com. Fantastic. And you are on BookBub too, aren't you? If people want to follow yeah. you there. Yeah. Yeah. I've recently found out about book. Great. Well, we'll put all of those in the show notes for the episode. So it's been fantastic talking. Thanks so much, Diana, and all the best with this next book. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm dying to see what happens with Jack. So I'll be in for the running for book two. <laughs> oh, I, I hope you're not the only one. I hope I've left enough of a, oh my goodness, what's going to happen next feel at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.